0: And good evening to all of you let us continue with our immersion into the wisdom the spirituality the words the implications the deeds of Jesus as they can be understood from a yogic standpoint <clears throat> and we had just seen in the, according to the gospel of Luke the second major act where Jesus done his most outstanding miracle, the the landmark, the thing which is his trademark, if we would banalize things with such a word, and that is resurrection, resurrecting dead people. That is also... So as I said, we are, um, we, we stopped last time at this miracle where for the second time in the Gospel of Luke, the first one was a very short scene by a funeral, and this one is with the little daughter of Jairus, a 12-year-old girl, that Jesus in a very peculiar way brings back to life, and he is even trying to hide it, he says, oh, the girl is just sleeping, and then when he does what he does, then he tells to the witnesses, which were the parents of the girl, plus three of his disciples, Peter, John, James, he tells to them not to tell to other people. And therefore, for the other people, you can imagine this is something so difficult to swallow because nobody has seen anything like this. That for the others is like, yeah, but the girl was in a coma, she had a sort of a cardiac arrest, she had too much fever and she went into some sort of clinical death. And this guy robbed her with vinegar or whatever he did. And there she was back alive. So it's not really a resurrection. And Jesus is fine with it. Because this resurrection is a little bit over the top. I'm telling you, in the history of the world, we have a lot of stories of resurrection. But they are all of them myths. And none of them is presented like being the real story of a real person. That Osiris came back to life, or I don't know what Indian deity, that Sati died and then she was reborn as Parvati, or other and other. There are lots of myths, but they are all myths. They don't refer to a person who had... uh, personal, a social security number, you know, of course, Jesus didn't have a social security number, but he could have had if they practiced that in that century. So, what I'm trying to say here is that you have to meditate very carefully why Jesus is the source of life, because he even says when he resurrects Lazarus, he says, I am the life, he says, I am the way, I am the the truth, and I am the life. Because he is God, and God is the author of life. Life exists because of the divine consciousness. We can spin around, I could now stay with you, and analyze, and do philosophy, and meditate. What is life? Why did life appear? Is life just a coincidence that carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen met, and uh, this is the dream of the stephen hawkins like people that it's all just an atheistic game of dice or is life a creation and if life is a creation can we dare to speculate with our little brains being just like grains of sand on a little planet in a corner of a galaxy in somewhere lost in a huge gigantic universe Can we even speculate as to why does life exist? Like creationists say, okay, life was created by God. You can speculate that even atoms are alive and there is a consciousness of the atom and so on. But in philosophy in general and in anthropology and in science of nature, in natural science, there is always this thing that there is The kingdom of things which are alive and things which are inorganic, inanimated. And therefore, the big question which separates the materialistic from the spiritual philosophy is if life has appeared as an accident and therefore it has no meaning and it goes nowhere, there is nothing to life. It's just an accident. You are an accident. So, milk some nice sensations for 80 years, because that's all you've got. You've got no past, no future, and there is no meaning whatsoever. Whatever you do doesn't mean anything, except from the standpoint of your friends, who may say, nice. But there is no meaning in a metaphysical way. Or, Life has a meaning, and if life has a meaning, then it's created by the Cosmic Consciousness with a purpose. It does something. And when we study Kashmiri Shaivism, for example, there I go back into this, because there you can see obviously that this is one of the great secrets of consciousness. Why does there exist consciousness? What is consciousness? From the standpoint of Shiva and Shakti, of the subjective consciousness, of the objective consciousness, these are very difficult and refined things, which, for example, Kashmiri Shaivism and other, uh, and gurus from Kashmiri Shaivism like Abhinava Gupta and others, they approach In a very grand way. But ultimately, we are uh, therefore seeing that we don't understand what life is. We are being told all the time by religions, who never explain things, that life is sacred. But why? And how sacred is it when this God which created this planet and this Solar system and perhaps this galaxy, this god seems to be a cruel god because on the same planet where we are allowed, where we are advised to be nice, on the same planet there are lions which eat gazelles. And it's so horrible that even National Geographic doesn't show exactly the details because it's gory, it's horrible, it's bloody. And it happens all the time. It happens three times per second on this planet. Then an animal tears apart another animal and eats it. And it's not because I am a bad person. It's not because we produce too much carbon dioxide and we should feel guilty about the climate change and all that. It happens simply because God, you can even go ironic and say that God had a sick mind. Somehow, some sort of cruel Spirit has conceived the world in which the big fish is eating the small fish every day three times per day. And the lions ugly and bloodily tear gazelles apart. That's the planet on which we are born. It's like, what's the difference then if Genghis, Genghis Khan is tearing a hundred thousand people apart? You know, Genghis Khan is not doing pretty much anything else than what a lion or a tiger is doing. He's just a lion among men. You know, there's what is the big deal about it then if the whole planet is based on this law of it. We kill all the time. We kill bacteria. We kill viruses. We kill a lot of things. You know, there is killing non-stop, non-stop. And everybody would say, if I kill the cockroaches in my house... That's kind of okay, because that's my habitat, that's my environment, because I don't want the cockroaches to crawl over me during the night time. If I eliminate the mice and other rodents and other parasites, it's legitimate that even Jesus would say, yeah, sure, keep your house clean, not crawling with mice and rats and stuff like this. No, The fact that if I get lice or fleas on my body, and I use some powder or something to clean myself from the lice and fleas, that is also legitimate. Like nobody would say that Jesus or Krishna or Buddha asked me to live infestated with germs and parasites and uh, insects and so on, just because I have to be compassionate. So even in religion, this compassion has a limit. And as soon as you cross that line it's free season, it's open season for killing. You can kill, no, and then people who defend their country, no, when the French invade the Germans or the Germans invade the French, then suddenly in France to kill Germans is a heroic act, is an act of patriotism. You go to the tomb of the French soldiers and you put wreaths of flowers, you put laurel, crowns of laurel, Like, oh, here are the great people who killed 100,000 Germans. And it's not wrong. It's like, oh, but they did it for the motherland. And that's perfectly okay. Then it becomes patriotism. So you can see that we live in a world which is not a world meant for an absolute idealistic sort of nonviolence. Which simply does not exist. And still we are being told that life is sacred. Why isn't the life of the gazelle sacred? Why isn't the life of the cockroach sacred? No, why isn't the life of the fleas that live, that want to live on my body, sacred? No? So it's sacred, but it's not sacred. By why is it sacred? And then all the religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, you name it, they condemn suicide. They say suicide is one of the gravest sins and it has very bitter consequences when you do it because God wants you to keep your life as long as the biological conditions go. You should not take the decision of finishing your life today. God should take the decision of finishing your life today. God is very egocentric. He's a control freak, you know. You should not control that. God is supposed to control that and if God hits you with a lightning bolt or get, you get run over by a car, it's God's will. But if you do it with a bullet or if you swallow poison, bad person, very bad person, you know. It's where is the limit? Why are these limits? It's a labyrinth. It's not very easy to understand the norms which govern such approach to life and death. And therefore we understand the Divine Spirit, the Universal Consciousness, wants life, wants us to live and to be here. It might not be the happiest of the existences. Nobody said among the great yogis, Buddha or whoever you want, that life on planet Earth is the happiest thing which exists anywhere in this universe. On the contrary, you know, in an Indian village, perhaps today somebody got eaten by a tiger because there is a man-eating tiger in the jungle and somebody was careless. Like, how happy is that? What sort of a happy, delightful, paradise-like life are we talking about when somebody gets bitten by a cobra and dies agonizingly because there is no serum nearby to deal with it? So, I'm, I keep telling you all these things to show you that here there is a great mystery somewhere. Because in a certain way, it's like you and I, we serve the cosmic consciousness. We serve a purpose. We are made for something. And uh, does there exist happiness? Sure. Sure. Either momentary happiness, that you had sex with the person that you worship, and then, wow, you know, then it's happiness. Or there is happiness, because, for the long run, when you become like Buddha. And Buddha says, you can do whatever you want, now I'm happy. I am on planet Earth, but I'm not like the people on planet Earth. Because they are full of desires, they are full of ego, they are full of darkness, they are full of lack of faith. And I, I am a member of the humanity, but only by aspect. Because inside, I don't have their desires, I don't have their ego, I don't have their pride and arrogance, I, I don't identify with humanity psychologically, and so on. And therefore, I live, I can close my eyes and have nirvana, and I am on planet Earth, but I'm not much belonging or off the planet Earth. In a certain other way, of course, he is, because he is compassionate, and he directs all his disciples to serve humanity, because he understands the same value of something sacred and divine in life. And thus, we can see that, as I'm saying it again, you and I, we are serving a purpose. It's exactly like, uh, if you want a very ridiculous comparison it's exactly like we would be lab rats guinea pigs in a biology laboratory you know the doctors the scientific researchers have got 20 guinea pigs these little white rats mice that they use for experiments to determine different things and which most often die and even die agonizingly it's a cruel part of the biological research on the face of and what if we are those mice And of course then God, the manager of the laboratory, says the mice are forbidden to commit suicide. Because we need them for our experiments. So the mice should not dare to take initiative and curb their lives because they serve a purpose. In a similar way we do serve a purpose and our lives don't belong to us because metaphysically life has been given to us. In the Bible it says that God breathed in the nostrils of Adam. Michelangelo saw it like God is touching Adam and gives him consciousness the conscious life of the human being. So there is a gift. Life is a gift and then it's like it doesn't belong to us. So it is sacred. We don't know what to do about it. There are situations where people believe that God is happy that the French have killed the Germans. No? like The limits are very blurry and a lot. It's the same God who says, don't kill each other because you are my lab rats. But suddenly there is a war between 100,000 lab rats from Germany and 100,000 lab rats from France. And at Verdun, they kill each other like lab rats, you know, by the hundreds of thousands. And then, but maybe that was part of the experiment. Maybe the gods were watching and playing dice or make, making bets on it or something. So that's why I'm saying life and death are great mysteries, which only in metaphysics and only in religion, people have managed to find out some meaning about it. And even then, when it is given to simple people, it is given in a simplified way. Don't commit suicide. Life is sacred. Thou shall not kill. And all that stuff. And again, up till a point. Until they attack your country. When they attack your... What's my country? My country is just a fucking piece of earth. And if they attack my country and they push me 300 kilometers further away... Was it worth it that I should kill 100,000 people just for a piece of earth? Just because I am attached to a piece of land and then suddenly murder becomes justifiable and it's called patriotism that you defended your country? No, like why? Then, Then how far does this go in other directions, you know, like... Ah, Again, we could go in absurd examples here, but what I'm trying to show to you is that this mystery of life is exactly what is brought forth here with Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who gives life. To my knowledge, there is no enlightened being in the last 5,000 years of history. Neither Krishna, nor Zoroaster, nor Gilgamesh, nor whatever. In every exception made of myths and legends, there is no flesh and blood person who gives life to another flesh and blood person, and suddenly there is a resurrection. It's the landmark of Jesus. Is the trademark of Jesus. After Jesus, some Christian people did it, like Anthony of Padua. I was saying it another time, an Italian saint. They did it. Okay, Peter, Peter the Apostle. They did it occasionally, but in the name of Jesus. Still, it's still under the trademark of Jesus. So this is very, very specific. Uh, I'm not saying that others could not do it. Be aware. For example, we have the famous legends of the Tibetan guru Tilopa. Tilopa is the man who started the biggest lineage of Tibetan yoga until today. And Tibetan yoga was something colossal. Like Tibetan yoga was something serious to the bone, powerful to the bone. Like there are few things in the world in terms of yoga and spirituality, which could compare with Tibetan yoga. And Tilopa is the man who started the strongest lineage of Tibetan yoga, which is included today under the so-called Kargyutpa, or the red hat lamas, the lamas that wear a red hat, Kargyutpa. And in the Kargyutpa, there is the lineage of yoga, of Tilopa, who had as disciple Naropa, and he had his discip- that one had his disciple Marpa, and then Milarepa, and then Gampopa. These were the first huge five yogis of this lineage, out of which Milarepa is like a legend. Perhaps out of these five, Tilopa and Milarepa, number one and number four in this series, they are the most far out, they are the most... And again, these are not myths... These are legends about a person that had a social security number, virtually speaking, and lived somewhere on the face of this earth, and had a mother, and potentially could have had children as well. We are talking about a flesh and blood person. Tilopa, the history of Tilopa, how did Naropa search for him, the disciple? How did he hear? Was this? Tilopa, the great yogi Tilopa, he became enlightened by contact with Dakinis, so he had did some sort of deity yoga, a form of tantra, a mixture of tantric deity yoga, even some sex, some right hand sexual tantra and stuff like this. And he but he was alone, nobody knew him, like that was his thing. And he became a public person in the following circumstances. He was in the yard of a Buddhist monastery, like if you would go here to the Buddhist monastery, near it, near enough. And there he was sitting on his tiger skin or whatever he had as a blanket. Usually yogis had tiger skins, leopard skins, this kind of thing. And he was eating fish. India by that century 9th century or something India was fanatically vegetarian Hinduism was a fanatically vegetarian religion and uh, the Buddhists of India they were also vegetarian because they were in India and so somebody goes to the abbot and says there is a weird guy we don't even know if he's a Buddhist or not, there's a guy we don't know And he sits out there and he eats fish right in our faces. So the abbot goes and scolds him and says, uh, you beggar, dirty man, whatever, idiot. uh, Why did you have to come to eat fish right 20 meters? Like we take this to be a provocation because you could as well have gone into the village, into a pub on the shore of the river. And quietly eat your fish. You know, it's like we don't tell you that you should not eat fish. Ultimately, it's your karma if you choose to kill animals and eat them. But doing it in the front of the monastery is like you on purpose want to provoke us. So why do you come here to eat fish right in our face? At which Tilopa does his first legendary, or his second legendary act in his life, Because Tilopa simply scoffs. He laughs back and he says, what an idiot you are. In the meaning, he's uh, very arrogant. Some gurus are like this. And I myself, having been uh, treated badly in the last period of time, I sometimes feel the same desire to scorn and scoff and to simply tell to the whole world, kiss my ass, you don't understand shit about the whole thing. No? Tilopa... He does it in a funny way. He scorns it like, the Buddhist guy is right. Theologically, he's like, why would you go to eat fish in his face, rub it in his face? Why can't you just be civilized and stay away? But Tilopa wants to rub it in his face because in a certain way, he's like the serial killer from the Hollywood movies who gets neurotic and wants to be caught. He provokes too much Because he wants to be caught, because he likes the popularity or something. In a certain way, tilopa wants to be seen. And because he wants to be seen, he goes and does something preposterous. And the guy, and then the tilopa laughs, scorns at him. And he does a gesture, says a mantra, clicks his fingers, whatever it is. And then something very strange happens. On the blanket or on the floor in front of him, there are the bones of some fishes that he has just eaten, and the bones of the fishes get up in the air, like they levitate, they simply float, they get materialized with flesh, like the fishes become fishes again, and not only that they are decorative fishes to be eaten or dead, they are alive, they start flapping in the air, and they are alive, and then they just, This lesson from Tilopa is a sort of a resurrection, not of human beings, but of fishes. Like, Tilopa doesn't dare to go as high as human beings, but he goes to the fishes. And uh, Tilopa basically wants to tell him like this, Dear abbot of a Buddhist monastery, who are probably not so advanced spiritually, because otherwise you'd be with me here, and uh, who are probably just a scholar. Like, I'm sure you know the Buddhist scriptures by heart, and all that. He simply tells him, look, I can rematerialize the fishes, and make them alive, which is very important. No? And he says, if I can do that, then what relevance does it have for me, of eating fishes? Because I'm God. I can give life to death. I can materialize them and give them life. So for me, life and death means nothing. I'm beyond life and death. That's why the philosophy of this being, he who can give life can as well take life. Because, but you should not take life if you cannot give life. No? God is the one who has the right of life and death. Because he can give life and then naturally he is allowed to take it back. God has given, God has taken, all praise be to God. Tilopa is a sort of a God, but you can see in the 10th century in India when he lived, God, the cosmic consciousness, did not give him the permission To make demonstrations on human beings. Please realize. Buddhist or not Buddhist. All the people who have reached states of cosmic consciousness. Especially the significant ones. The major ones. They are attuned to the cosmic consciousness. They they cannot do things which are against the will of God. Or as it is called in India. The Dharma they cannot even if the Buddhists don't mention a will of God it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist the Buddhists call it Dharma like there is a sort of a righteousness that righteousness in Christianity would be called the will of God and therefore the will of God does not allow yogis and yoginis to manifest paranormal powers and to do other things, definitely not beyond a certain limit. Because if it would be allowed, like you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, then it would be much, much more easy to demonstrate certain spiritual things. If Jesus would come every 50 years, and he would be filmed live, as he resurrects three dead people every time he comes people would start having serious doubts. Like like right now, there are many people who think that Jesus never even existed. That Jesus is a sort of a Mickey Mouse invented by some suicidal idiots from Israel. I'm saying suicidal idiots because the fact that they invented Jesus just produced death for them also. Out of the 12 apostles of Christ, 11 died violently. They have been assassinated. Only one died of natural death and that was John in the island of Patmos, today somewhere in the Aegean, in the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, what I'm trying to say is it, it is not allowed, and you all know that that is the law, the wall of silence, that is the blockage of information, that humanity has a destiny of ignorance. That's exactly what Buddha said, because he said, I want to find the solution to happiness. Okay, and you found it? Yes. So tell us, what is the smart thing that you found? And Buddha didn't say it directly, he said it in his own way, and he said, The source of suffering, is ignorance, like if there would be no ignorance, people would not suffer, of course, it's a bit of a stupid thing, because you can say, what if I cut my finger accidentally, what's the ignorance there, and then will I not suffer, what if Buddha cuts his finger, you know, then you will say, well, he knows he's going to cut his finger, and he will not cut his finger. Like you can twist it a lot. We're not going into these sophisms, into these cheap sophisms. It's not the point of it. The point of what I'm saying here is that humanity, as you know, is blocked in the knowledge. Like we do not manage to demonstrate that there exists pranamaya kosha. Pranamaya kosha, the etheric body, is the object of contest. And 51% of the scientists and doctors claim that it does not exist. If we cannot demonstrate the existence of prana, of chi, it's not demonstrated scientifically and it is bitterly contested, then how are we going to demonstrate that there is continuity of life after death? That's even further and even more difficult. How are we going to demonstrate that there is a consciousness, universal consciousness, that has created us and this universe, and which consciousness loves us, helps us, and has a purpose with us, into us. There is somewhere a bad contact. Yeah, so... Therefore, the condition, the characteristic of the human condition is ignorance. That's why we need to work on the higher chakras to remove this ignorance. For example, in Tibetan Buddhism, ignorance is the premises or is related with the fifth element and with Vishuddha chakra. Therefore, it basically says the whole humanity has some bitter blockage on Vishuddha chakra. And most people don't manage to know. To know. As Tantrasara used to say somewhere, a Tantric text, above those who don't know are those who read. And in this way they know. To know is superior to not know. And thus, here, we are having the meaning of things. Because even Jesus, when he performs a resurrection, he says, don't tell too many people. And it remains weird. Did it really happen? As you know, people doubt that even the resurrection of Jesus himself is a fairy tale, and it did not exist or there is some hanky-panky, there is something fake there, and there is some cheating or something. That's precisely because billions of people now on the face of the earth, they have to stay in doubt. They have to stay. I am an engineer with an education in physics, so I know what it means to be rigorous from a scientific standpoint. And I can tell you very clearly most of the things that we are teaching in yoga, they are not, we cannot demonstrate them the way that the physicists from the Max Planck University would like us to have them demonstrated. We cannot, and I'm not saying that we cannot because it's not possible. I'm simply saying we cannot because there is a sort of a collective hypnosis. There is a sort of invisible law which says people should not be given this. Try to think how much the Internet and the computers have changed the human life. Most of you didn't even catch the life before Internet and computers. I, who am more of a dinosaur, I still remember the days where there was nothing, where people completely depended on landlines, on telephones, and those were considered a technical miracle, That in some countries, everybody had a telephone and they could call to everybody, you know. Today, nobody gives a rat's ass about landlines. And this, everybody wants smarter and smarter phones and 4G and 5G and 65G and whatever they will invent further into this, no? So it's like, how much was the humanity change, and not necessarily to the better, and not necessarily in a more spiritual way, just because of mobile telephone, electromagnetic technology, networking, internet, computers, and all that, in just 30 years, no? I remember at the time when I was living in Denmark in 1990 or 1991, it was just starting, was only timidly starting. No? So we are talking about not even thirty years. Thirty years maximum since things started moving and how much it has changed already compared to how the world was before. No? Like today your girlfriend or your mother or somebody gets upset if you don't call them. Oh you didn't call. I couldn't reach. Why didn't you call? You know? In the old days nobody would have blamed you for it, because you said, I had no telephone, I didn't find any phone, I was blocked somewhere 15 kilometers away, and as soon as I got home, I picked up the phone, and I told you, sorry, I'm two hours late, you know, but like, there was no phone, you, there were some public phones, but most of them were broken, and not functioning, actually, you know, in many countries, so it's like, People were even, you know, nobody would get upset that you, you said you came at 2 o'clock, and suddenly you came at 3.30 and said, sorry, something happened. No? Today, people will say, why didn't you pick up your cell phone and text me? Why didn't you know? Like, life is completely different in small things. No? Like, people were not very punctilious about something. You promised to come at 2 o'clock, and why didn't you call to say you are not coming? I didn't have a phone. That's why I was out in the jungle. And I now you cannot say now you can phone from Mount Everest. You can pick up your cellular phone and phone to your mother who is in the Atacama Desert in Chile. You know you can just communicate from one end of the world to the other. So uh, so much I'm saying that humanity. Imagine what humanity would have if suddenly would demonstrate prana and the many, many, many uses of prana. What if people would understand that a disease like cancer is a disease about prana? If we would know prana as well as we know electricity, then cancer would become a curable disease. And it's millions and millions of people dying every year of cancer alone, not to mention other diseases. And therefore, that's why I say... Any you, you think like it's a little thing. But any such thing produces a revolution in the karma, and in the level of consciousness, and in the way of life, and in so many other things. And that's why this planet, humanity, is conditioned by certain thresholds of ignorance. You come to a yoga school, and because you come to a yoga school... It's like you live in a soap bubble. You are not in the world. In the world, these things like, I remember we had a pupil, you know, was one of the neurotic women who even wrote some things about me on the internet, who was in the school 10 years ago, and when she told to a doctor in California that she could feel energy because she's been to yoga, he proclaimed that she was schizophrenic. According to a medical doctor in California, if you can feel that you have an aura and that energy flows through your body, that's a symptom of schizophrenia. So it means we are all schizophrenic. We should close down Agama and go to a mental hospital, a line, you know, form a conga line and just go to the mental hospital and say, please take care of us. Please take care of us. We are very handicapped. We are all schizophrenic. We all can feel chakras and energies around our body. That's why I say so far we are from even demonstrating the existence of the etheric body, which is kindergarten in yoga. is the first thing which you learn in the first weeks that energy is circulating through your nadis, through your body, through your chakras, and all that. So, uh, the planet suffers from this wall of silence, from this fact that information is not flowing freely, and more information would mean a brave new world. It would simply change the world. More than the mobile telephones. And the internet. Did change it. Much more. And thus. Uh, be aware of the fact that maybe Tilopa. Could resurrect man. And if he ever saw some funeral. He could go there and say. "Ha! Maybe some of you want to do yoga with me. To have me as a guru. Look. And that guy came to life. If he could bring, if he could materialize fishes, like the fishes were eaten, the meat of the fishes was in his stomach, and if he could just take some bones, and even without touching them, with the mere power of his mind, he could go like, whoop! (laughs) Then where was the limit? What could this man do? We can easily presume that tilopa was capable to bring human beings back to life. But tilopa was not allowed. Something up there never gave him the green light to go that far. The green light was given to Jesus. And even to Jesus it was given for three or four cases. Like Jesus didn't do it every day. You can imagine that in Israel, people were dying by the hundreds. What if Jesus would have said... Nobody dies in Israel as long as I am alive here. Now, there is a point where he plays this game and he heals a blind man. And Peter says, why are you healing him? Almost by force. And he said, Jesus says, as long as I live in this world, I am the light of the world. You know, So it's like, I cannot tolerate to see a blind man. God gave me the thing, go and make them all see. Why didn't God then send, as long as you are in Israel, nobody should die. People should just bring your dead people, even after 20 days. They should bring them to you and you should do kadabong, katabong, katabong. And they would come one by one back. And people would say, man, for four years, for three years and a half, nobody died. And People died, but this bloody Jesus kept on bringing them back. And there was not one dead person in three and a half years. After we crucified him, bad luck, you know, then they started dying again. They kept on dying. But as long as, no, even Jesus could not do that. If Jesus would have done that, we wouldn't have had Christianity. We would have had the biggest wave of conversion to spirituality that everybody would have become like the 12 apostles. There There was nobody who could not believe anymore. Even the king who was pissed off at Jesus, even the high priest, Caiaphas, and they must have had a dead mother, a dead brother, an uncle, an aunt, a cousin, or a child. And if Jesus served them and resurrected two, three members of their family, then everybody would have said, don't touch this guy. You know, like, this guy is so useful to us. Yeah, he's a hippie. He just keeps telling that you should love your enemies and stupid stuff like this. We don't believe him about that, or maybe, but definitely he is useful to have around. Don't kill him because as long as this guy is around, nobody dies. Any one of you eats like a pig and gets arteriosclerosis and then you get a heart attack? Jesus is at hand. Jesus is available to touch you and to know. Like who would have not believed? But Jesus did three or four resurrections and this one behind closed doors and there was a semi-doubt always like did we see right? Were we hypnotized? I knew a yogi, one of the teachers of one of my teachers, he had been put in prison by the communists, and he did 15 years of political prison in the time of Stalin in Romania, and he did 15 years of non-stop yoga. And because of this, he had a very strong Ajna chakra, and he could perform a lot of paranormal things. And they brought him a girl who was in a wheelchair, and when he entered the room, he was he kind of looked at her. He was a Leo, a very manipuristic Leo man. You no? Know? And he looked at her and he said, what? He said, you are not paralyzed. Of course you can walk. And he walked to her and he said, stand up. And got her by the hand. And the girl under the empire of such a strong man coming on so strong to her, she stood up. Her parents almost fell down making the sign of the cross like... They have never seen anything like this. Like this guy was like Jesus. They knew that their girl was in a wheelchair paralyzed. And this guy took her up without doing anything in just three seconds. And then when they went home and they gave him yoga and he said, I put some energy into you, but it will not stay forever. It will will last about 40 days, 7 weeks. And meanwhile, you have to generate the same energy with your practice. So you do this, you do this. He taught her some yoga thing, which she do. These people went back to their city, which was 400 kilometers away. And then the girl started not doing her yoga. And slowly she started getting back into the wheelchair. And the parents said, probably this guy hypnotized us. It was too good to be true. That's exactly what's happening. You know, Jesus is not the first one who got disappointed by how blind the human beings can be. So even with the resurrection and with these things, no, like Jesus should have done it and overdone it. You know, should have gone around, resurrected hundreds and thousands of people. And then indeed, probably the history of the world would have changed much more. But God did not want that the history of the world should change much more because uh, the history of the world had to produce still some bitter events. No, we had to have all the crazy stuff which has happened in the last 2,000 years because it's Kali Yuga. It's exactly like you complain, why didn't God bring Satya Yuga faster? Because Kali Yuga... The winter of mankind is necessary. It's necessary. It's it's required in the history of mankind. You cannot stop the winter just because you hate cold weather. And you say, may God bring spring. Now, let's skip the winter. From the autumn, we jump directly to the spring. Then you would fuck the nature. You would completely destroy the cycles of the nature. So, in the same way... The divine consciousness knows that Jesus is born in Kali Yuga. And therefore a limited amount, even for Jesus, a limited amount has to be done. Not because Jesus could not do 30 people instead of 3. But because there was no more. Jesus says it clearly. I came to show you what my Father in Heaven has sent me to show you. Like I could show you 10 times more. I would be an outlaw. I would break. My father did not send me to, to resurrect 30 people. My father in heaven gave me three. That was it. That's what I did. I did what was my dharma to do. So that is why I say meditate carefully on this thing, the gift of life and who can bring it and how And even the fact that you'll never know if it was properly done. If you see the life of St. Anthony, there is an Italian movie about St. Anthony, the Italian saint who was a disciple of Francis of Assisi. And Anthony brought back a girl. But even in the movie, which is a Catholic movie, like they want you to believe that the thing has happened. If you look at it like an engineer with a background in physics, you will say the girl could have very well been in a cardiac arrest or in some state of shock, in a sort of a clinical death or something. And the fact that this guy shook her a little bit or something, then she came back and she was alive. And it was not Jesus. It was just a freak case. And probably a thousand other people prayed over dead girls, and they didn't come back. Those 1,000 cases are not mentioned, but this one with Anthony is highlighted like this is the real thing. As a scientist, you can say you cannot highlight just one case, which is a freak case and which can be a coincidence, and which can have other explanations. So it's very easy to be skeptical that resurrection actually cannot happen, and it has never happened, and maybe this one is a story, or it's a misunderstanding. And Jesus, up to a certain point, he is happy to keep it like a misunderstanding, because he knows that he cannot change humanity totally, Suddenly, that's not possible. So he uh, did it in this way. And now there comes a different episode after he did this. He said, when Jesus, the author here, in chapter 9, we're starting now, when Jesus had called the twelve together, so he gathered the twelve apostles. These were like the most important disciples the ones who were walking with them everywhere, and so on. Again, we can speculate why he didn't allow... What if somebody was like a puppy? You cannot get rid of him. He just stays there, and he comes, and he comes, and waves his tail, and says, you know, and you say, go home, go to your village. No, no, over my dead body. I will not. You know, I will just be here watching you. You know, if, if you don't like to come near you, I'll stay five meters away. And what will you do? Will you kill me? Will you beat me up? I just want to be in your presence. I don't have children, I don't have a job, I don't have obligations, I just want to come here and be with you. Of course they would have given him some food, and eventually he would have become part of the group. So this thing with the twelve is also an interesting thing, like how did people filter themselves as to be close to Jesus? Because you would expect that there were a lot of religious people, and a lot now. But one had children at home and had to say, Jesus, I can stay with you five days. Then I have to go back to my village. Or another one had a job. Like they said, I have planted corn. Or they didn't have corn in though. Let's say wheat. You know, and I have to go gather my wheat because if not, the idiots will steal it away and I'm bankrupt and so on. And I can stay with you three, four days. But then I have to run back at my wheat fields and so on. And others, like people always had excuses They could not be like hippies, like the birds of the sky, free, and just stay with Jesus, go with Jesus, and say, wow, when you found such a one, you will never give up. You know, it's like you would simply say, I stay with this guy until I die or he dies. You know, it's like, I'm never going to leave such an opportunity. No, this is how would you think. So how did those 12 become the twelve? So he called them together, he gathered them, and he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So can you imagine these 12 people, they were fishermen until three months ago. Now they are not practicing anything, that they were praying, maybe sometimes, and they were witnessing Jesus doing, 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 And of course that they ask him, how the heck did you do it? And Jesus would say, yeah, my Ajna Chakra is gigantic, I can't explain to you, you know, it's like, you know, when your Ajna Chakra will get as big as mine, you'll be able to do what I do, like, you know, it's obvious that these people were piggybacking completely on Jesus, they were not doing much, and yet Jesus had the capacity that he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Authority, not knowledge. He didn't say if you take peppermint, all the people who have stomach problems, they will benefit from an infusion made of peppermint. Jesus was not teaching folk medicine alternative herbalism. Jesus gave them a sort of authority, power, like somebody has a pain in the stomach, you pray and the pain stops. Can you imagine these people who did not practice spirituality and who are relatively young because Jesus stayed for three years and a bit. So, Jesus, these people, most of them have been with Jesus maybe three years. Maybe three years and two months. No? So, in this time, how much did they have the time to evolve, to purify? to? I mean, of course, they were in the presence of a being which was incredible. But still, no? So, then, they were young. It's like some of you say, I have done yoga for three years. And then suddenly I'm saying, you I give you now the power to take out all... I'm just going to look in your eyes, and then you are going to have the power to drive out demons and to cure diseases. Imagine how unprepared they were. What a shock, what, what it was. A different style of work, right? Jesus was not a guru of yoga or something like this. And he gave them the power and authority. Authority. Remember, to drive out demons, you need to have an authority. Tantric texts say very clearly, when you have this initiation, when you use this mantra, when you have this and when you have that, then all the goddesses, all the deities, all the asuras all the Yakshas and Rakshas and other families of spirits, they will know you. When you appear in front of them, they will say, oops, even if you are not Jesus, you are sent by Jesus. So you have a badge which says this is the marshal, this is the sheriff. You know, you represent something much bigger than you. And thus, and he sent them out, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. As you can see, Jesus is having one very powerful PR. He heals the sick. Like people can say, "That ah, he's crazy, he's a hippie, he talks nonsense, he doesn't respect the Sabbath, he pisses off our priests, he does this, he does that, but he healed my Aunt Mary. She couldn't walk. And this guy touched her, and suddenly she was walking. You know, it's like, what can you say about that? Nothing. I have to scratch my head and be in confusion. I can say that he is weird, but he's healing the sick. Therefore, when he's healing the sick, everybody has to respect him at least for that. They will say, I don't know if I agree with the philosophy of, Jesus, of this Jesus of Nazareth, but the sure thing is that he healed my cousin Walter. And my cousin Walter is very happy that he was healed. No? So this is PR, healing the sick. It's like and his apostles, and he said, preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. You heal the sick and you attract goodwill, and then people are listening to you, and you tell them some incredible story, that the kingdom of God is coming, and uh, there should be forgiveness and love and this. Which nobody believes it. In a place like Israel, nobody was believing in it. Everybody was manipuristic and tough. And this guy was just bringing them some exalted, incredible thing. But because they could heal the sick, they had the year of the population. So, either, even if you teach yoga, if you can heal the sick... People will say, yeah, this yoga is weird, but you know, I've had my cousin who went there with a health problem, and it was solved. So it's like, there is something to it. So he sent them out to do two things, to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. Of course, Jesus was not really, really ultimately interested in the healing of the sick. He was actually interested in preaching the kingdom of God. That was his true mission. Because the sick are healthy now, and ten years later they eat half of a pig, and they get sick again. So the fact that you heal a sick today doesn't mean that he's going to be healthy for the rest of their lives. And thus, Jesus knows that the healing of the sick is a veneer. It's a superficial thing which comes and goes. But uh, opening people's eyes to the kingdom of God, what he calls the kingdom of God, is having a much greater importance. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No stuff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Basically, he says, be like the Buddhist monks. You'll have to beg because you don't have reserves of bread. So you'll always have to say, brother, do you have some bread for me also? You have to beg. You have to live on people's mercy and friendship and love. And he, say, he said them, no stuff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Like even if your clothes are getting worn out, you say, can somebody please donate me a tunic or something I don't have? Like the babas from India. Like the Buddhist monks, it makes you ask yourself if Jesus had not been in India before the age of 30, because that's what he saw. That's what he would have seen in India. He would have seen wandering monks who had nothing. They were free like the birds of the sky. You live and you say, what if nobody gives me food tomorrow? Tough luck. Maybe you don't have enough faith. Maybe God wants to test you if you can resist five days without a piece of bread until somebody will give you a piece of bread. No, So he simply advises this kind of total surrender. It's a consecration. Surrender. Consecration. Ishvara Pranidana. It's like he says, go living in God. Living with God. That should be your state of consciousness. You are not big people who start accumulating things and receiving gifts from people. You should have no bag, no money, no bread, not even a staff. He's really tough on them in this way and just not even the extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. So don't start becoming vata dosha. You know, don't, don't be like some of these people who go wandering around. They are vata neurotic people. Vata neurotic people are restless and they are wandering not because they are nomads. The, the, the way would be to see they have a nomadic lifestyle. Not because they are wise and detached, but because they are neurotic, because they have too much vata and they are restless. And they constantly have to go somewhere else, go somewhere else, because they get bored. You see, Jesus sees exactly the strengths and the weaknesses of everything. And he says, take nothing, surrender, live at the mercy of God, at the mercy of elements, and at the mercy of people. Because that will make you communicate much more with people. Not uh, arrogantly going in some place and say, yeah, I have money and I have uh, bread for the whole winter. And if nobody wants to come to talk to me, fuck them. They can just go drown themselves, you know. No, he makes, he obliges them to stay in contact with the community, exactly as Buddhist monks have to stay in contact with their community. And he says, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. Like, don't change host." There will be lots of, either you are vata neurotic, or one person will hate another person because they will say he preferred that house instead of my house. In the beginning he was two days in my house, and then he moved to that house. And they will become jealous at each other. A lot of things. Jesus can see the lines, the force field of the people's mind, and can see the future and the potentialities of it. And he gives some very simple advice. Very simple advice. Like, why don't you try to preach uh, about Jesus and about yoga and to go to Australia or to Papua New Guinea or somewhere and do exactly this? Take no bread, no stuff, no money, no bag, and stay in one house when you go in there, you know, like, be like this. See what it does, see what it means. If people do not welcome you, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. No, shake your dust, you know, like they were barefoot. Usually or they had sandals and in the dusty land of they were getting muddy, uh, dusty, because it was mostly dry weather, you know. And he says, do like, you know, sometimes you see that the dogs do this. They just scorn at each other doing like this, you know. Just do the same thing, like as you leave the town dust off your feet, and say these people, I came to them in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, and somehow they didn't like me, they didn't want me, so buzz off, as you can see, here it's something he tells them, have no bread bag, you have no tunic, you have, but he says, you shall not become brown nosers, ass kissers, you know, That because you go there and you depend on these people's bread and roof, you're just going to, and even if people don't like you, you say, oh, don't you have a place in the stable? I will sleep with a donkey. And No. He's in a certain way arrogant like the Indian and Tibetan gurus. Like you say, if you don't want to receive me, I am the first to leave. I'm not going to beg you for a second. Actually, it is you. Who should beg me to stay in your village? What an honor to have the whole winter with you, a disciple of Jesus, who can teach you a lot of interesting things. No? So he said, I'm not begging you to stay in your village. You should beg me to stay in your village. This is a little bit of what I was saying in the QA that there is a sense of superiority, you know, like we are the chosen ones. And uh, if you don't like me, it's not I who lose something. You don't even know what you are missing if you don't want me in your village. It's a bit arrogant, it's a bit haughty, you know, like you come from a high position and you say, I'm not begging you. I am who I am and you want it good, you don't want it, hasta la vista. So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel And healing people everywhere. This was, you don't understand it perhaps, but this was winter time. Winter was difficult in Palestine, in Judea, in all those provinces, because it doesn't get as cold as in Europe, but sometimes in Jerusalem, once every 11 years or something, they even saw snow. So... If one, wind, if one night you don't have a house, you are not in a village near a fire, and you live out with Jesus in some wilderness, and then suddenly there is snow, you might even die, and definitely you are not going to have comfortable days. So there is in Israel a period of about two months, when the weather is a bit too tough in the winter to stay outside, and cover yourself with three blankets, or stuff like this. Even so, there must have been a lot of homeless people who did. But uh, Jesus instituted this. In the winter, you go to the villages. You see, he could not take them all in one village, because the villages were relatively small. The food was always a problem in that part of the world, because of the drought and the poor soil. And because of this, he could not bring with him 50 people to one village, even to his mother in Nazareth, and say, Mom, I came with my disciples, we'll winter here. The question is, who will give you food for two months? Two, three months, where do we get that much food? So they were simply spreading in all the villages. Each one or two of them was taking shelter in another place. They were spending the winter. So it says, So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. But before that, I want to insist on this. He says, If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Like Jesus often makes this case. He says, Because I, Jesus, I am so black and white, you are with me or you are not with me, you know, like with Jesus it was not like, even I who am a bit of a madman, I'm much more ready to be tolerant, you know, because I don't have this black-white warrant which Jesus had, no, because he could raise the dead and he could walk on water and then he could say, those people did not receive my apostles, There is a case in heaven against them. There is a case against them. Well, you don't want Jesus to have a case against you. You know, like there is a memory in Akasha that these people refused one of the apostles of Christ. So when the right time is coming, ooh, 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 it's going to get painful. It's going to get ugly, you know, because these people are godless. They somehow refuse to receive God or the. Emissaries of God. So, as you can see, Jesus is very tough. He says, Does shake the dust as a testimony against them. A testimony to whom? A testimony to the angels. A testimony to God who remembers everything forever. So, here you can see this attitude of Jesus, you know, that he is very sharp. So the disciples went out and did their best, going from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, this was one of the local kings, he was the son of the king who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby the idiot who asked them to kill all the babies from Bethlehem because he heard that there was a special baby born in that special astrological circumstance. This guy was the son of that one. So it was still the local king. When now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, like every king, he was informed what's happening in his kingdom. And he was perplexed. Because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. That was particularly disturbing because this Herod, he had just killed John. He had assassinated John by decapitating. And now he hears that people in the villages in his kingdom say, Ha ha, the king killed John and God sent him back and that's Jesus. He was very, he must have been very vexed, very annoyed by kind of what the heck are people saying. Others said that Elijah had appeared. Elijah was one of the strongest prophets of the Jewish history. Elijah is the one who stopped rain in a local kingdom somewhere for years and years. And those people had to pack and go. They lost their country because Elijah said, Now it's not going to rain here for three years because you pissed off God. So he was a very big and very loud prophet, this Elijah. Even uh, the Christians say that Elijah is the saint that controls the thunderstorms and the lightning, you know, and when there were lightning storms, they prayed to Elijah that he is the master of the storms, and that because he could control the weather, because he, he stopped the rain for years and years. Others, therefore, they say that Elijah had appeared. This, he, you, you call him Jesus, but actually it's Elijah. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him or to find out more. So you can see that Jesus was having so much popularity that even the authorities were worried. Like the king said, John was speaking against me that I am an immoral, depraved, pervert. And I killed him. And now there comes another one. You know, they are like the mushrooms after the rain. What am I going to do? No? And uh, people like Herod, who had a good Manipura, being leaders, they were worried. They were concerned. They kept an eye on Jesus. That was one of the main sources of what happened later. Because these people who kept an eye on Jesus they tried to use him, they tried to manipulate him, they tried to say, can't we make this Jesus tell like us, tell the same story like us, in this way he is such a charismatic prophet, then he will enforce us, he will empower us. And Jesus knowing this, he was exactly like the topsy-turvy, he always said something else, he always did something else, He changed everything and he constantly provoked the religious and temporal authorities all the time in all the ways. There were people in Israel who wanted to chase away the Romans. Jesus was telling them to love the Romans. There were people who were kissing the ass of the Romans by taxing the population. Jesus told them to quit and to become spiritual. Whatever people said, either they were temporal authorities or religious authorities, Jesus was always upside down. He always said, no, you are not doing it well. Everybody was observing the Sabbath and Jesus was breaking the Sabbath day. And again and again, the list could continue a lot and a lot. So here you have seen another aspect of the life of Jesus. He was retiring for the winter. He was not trying to brave the winter and say, we all live on that field and I'm going to hold you by the hands and give you body heat like Milarepa and you will be able to slip in the snow if necessary. So you don't need to go to the villages. Stay with me. No. Even Jesus, as often as it was possible, he was practicing a sort of common sense. Like in our country, in our community... People in the winter, they just go in the village and sit by the fire. So that's what my apostles should do. That's what in the future, like not, we are not going to change this because we are not going to change the weather on planet Earth or in Israel in this way. So you can see this mixture that Jesus sometimes was scandalizing, provoking, being completely different. And sometimes he also knew how to have a complete common sense and integrate. But you see that this integration was peculiar. First of all, people say, is it possible for somebody like Jesus to give you a power? I remember when I was young to see that even in the 20th century, I have seen such stories. I was together with uh, my best friend from those days. We're both yogis. We're both practicing and studying yoga. And uh, we were together with our yoga teacher from that period of time. And we had discovered, my best friend was an amateur photographer. He knew how to process films, negative films and photography. In those days, we didn't have digital photography and all that. So uh, then by appointment with our yoga teacher, we wanted to make some photos which can be used for trataka for performing Samyama, like if you have a statue of Shiva, which is generating a very powerful Ajna chakra, then there is a yoga technique called Trataka, which some of you know, and some of you don't know yet, and you do Trataka with that photo, you put it on the wall, or one meter away from you, and you do Trataka, and you try to identify with the contents of it, that's called by Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra, this is called Samyama. So I can do some, or I can do Samyama with a big yogi. Do I have a photo of Sri Yukteswar doing Shambhavi Mudra and being full on in Ajna Chakra? What if I look at his photo three hours every day? Then I get contaminated by his Ajna Chakra. This method is called Samyama. And this practiced much, even in Agama, beyond a certain level, people are doing it. So I just explained to you why we wanted to have some rare photos. So we found some art albums. Remember, it was communist times, 1980s, early 1980s, in a communist country behind the Iron Curtain. So it was very difficult to find, and there was no internet and something. So we were very difficult to try to find some good images you know, borrowing a book from somebody who had a rare book, and then taking a photocopy, and then then we're going in the dark, in the bathroom, and there we are processing the film, and after we are processing the film, we were making the photos themselves. And here comes the point. The photo machine... There is a table for making the photos, a projector, a vertical projector. So you project the photos on a table and there you put photographic paper, you impress it, and then you put it in some liquid and keep it there until it... So we were doing this. I was doing the liquids things and my friend was doing the machine. And uh, he discovered immediately that this machine had a bad contact and he was getting electrocuted. It was not electrically well, it was a bit of an old, and every time when he touched metallic parts of it, he got zapped, no, and he told to our yoga teacher, he said, I'm getting zapped every five minutes, you know, as soon as I touch something, it was dark, a dark room for making photos. And he said, as soon as I get, uh, I'm getting zapped and it's pretty uncomfortable and sometimes I'm shaking and I'm, you know, and I'm afraid that I'll get zapped much worse or something like this. And then our yoga teacher, who was an advanced guy, he simply said, look, I'm making a concentration right now and for one minute, it it didn't take more than one minute. And he said, I make it in such a way that for 24 hours you will resist electricity not forever, for 24 hours. And indeed, my friend could continue the whole night, and he was not caring about electricity anymore. He felt the electricity, but it didn't produce any suffering, like his body could take it without even him blinking. So, yes, some advanced yogis can pass on qualities to other people, even for a limited period of time, Or sometimes forever. For example, Ramakrishna, when he was severely ill, he passed on all his capacities to his disciple Vivekananda. That's how Vivekananda became such a big yogi in such short time. And without practicing too much, Ramakrishna was crazy. He practiced yogic things probably for 30 years. And then Vivekananda got it in Twenty four hours. Ramakrishna called him one day. He was sick with cancer and he could see that his you could say, but why couldn't he kill himself? No, he didn't want to heal himself. That's a different story, yeah? And therefore he he said, Vivekananda, come here. No, and stay, let's meditate. And he meditated with him for one hour or something. And then when Vivekananda opened his eyes, Ramakrishna was crying in a state of devotion, in a state of mystical fervor. And he said, my son, I have given to you, I have passed on to you all my yoga from this life. All the yoga which I have done, all the paranormal abilities, all the things, I have just passed them on to you. And he said, now I am just a beggar. Like if I want, I have to start practicing yoga from scratch because I don't have any more capacities. I gave them to you. And Vivekananda became a big yogi. In no time, in no time, but because his guru had simply given it to him. It's exactly like you'd give a coat, and when you are in that coat, you look good. So here is my coat. That's why, in general, the great gurus do that with one favorite disciple. Like when they decided that one disciple is going to take over most of what the guru did that disciple receives a transmission from the guru, where the guru, because if you die, you don't need to take some of these abilities and things with you. You go to the kingdom of heaven anyway, and there you don't need the telekinetic abilities or hypnotic abilities or any. No, So the gurus can afford to donate it to the next one. And this is what creates in India and Tibet lineages that, Tilopa gave it to Naropa, Naropa gave it to Marpa, Marpa gave it to Milarepa, Milarepa gave it to Gampopa. There is always one which continues. Gurus can have many disciples. Some did some. Brahma Krishna had 12 main disciples. But he gave, he passed on his thing to Vivekananda and he said, Vivekananda... Take care of my disciples. Like now you are the Baba. Now you are the big Guru. So there is this thing. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But not by giving them his accomplishment. Jesus was so perfect, so powerful. That he said for this winter I can awaken in you this power to eliminate negative souls and to do healing. You have it. So that you don't go bare-handed and you say, we heard a lot of things from Jesus, and but what can you do? Uh, nothing. You know? Like Jesus gave them some instruments to be able to do this. This is the passing of the mantle. Jesus was capable to do it with all these 12 people, telling them, go and act into my name. Also, Jesus had the common sense to know that even if he wouldn't have been crucified and lived for 70 years, Christianity, the future of humanity, could not have been a one-man show. One man cannot be in enough places. He knew that he needed a team, that he needed later an organization. The team were the Twelve Apostles. Then the twelve apostles anointed the first bishops of Christianity, probably a hundred of them, and those one hundred bishops, a hundred years later, they were what is called today the Christian church, the early Christian church. So therefore Jesus knew, this is not only about me, like I am the one who cuts the waters, the prow of the boat that splits the waters, but behind me there has to be a whole thing. And that's why Jesus is already getting them accustomed to be without him. Be without him for two months and do some spiritual work. And then come back in the spring and meet me. And then we continue and continue and continue. So this is the beauty of it. You can see the wisdom of Jesus. You can see how far he went. There were other gurus who did not manage to do that. We can always find the excuse that maybe it was not the will of God. But for example, when Ramana Maharishi, who was a wonderful yogi, when Ramana Maharishi died, he did not have even one person. Not a team. He did not have one apostle. The only one who became his apostle, really, was Paul Brunton, an Englishman who was a journalist, and who in the presence of Ramana Maharishi, he had a state of lower samadhi. Not Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He had a state of Savikalpa Samadhi. And he wrote about it in his book, A Search in Secret India. And then, uh, you know... But Paul Brunton did not go in the ashram. And when Ramana Maharishi died, he went on his chair and said, now I can help you instead of Ramana. I'm the next one. No, there didn't exist such a thing. Jesus, as you can see, although he died dramatically violently. Suddenly, he had prepared everything. He was very down-to-earth in this way. He had the common sense to know what was coming and to know what was necessary. No? So, enough for tonight. We have described this meaningful thing because it's meaningful because in a certain way, that's what we do in yoga. You learn yoga for one year, two years, three years, four then you go and teach. Some of you go and teach to the other ends of the world. No? And it's like you are being sent out. You're not supposed to represent me. You're supposed to represent Shiva. Shiva is the guru of yoga. We all teach yoga in the name of Shiva. Shiva is the Adi guru. But, of course, there are also styles of yoga. You can say, well, I'm teaching a yoga with chakras and energy and concentration, which is actually the Agama yoga style, which I learned from my guru, Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati. That can be there, but this is exactly what I'm saying. We all teach by a certain empowerment, exactly as Jesus empowered his apostles You are being empowered to be yoga teachers and to go out there and spread yoga. Everybody can see that yoga is very necessary, that it does a lot of good. And exactly as it does you a lot of good, it can do to 100,000 other people out there a lot of good. So the question is, of course, how to spread it in the most efficient way ways in the most efficient by the most efficient method. So that's why I said it's meaningful, this scene is meaningful, because that's what's happening in the world of yoga as well. Ramakrishna created twelve disciples who created the Vivekananda, the Ramakrishna Vivekananda mission, which still exists. There is a Ramakrishna ashram even in Penang, where you go to do your visa, you don't know that's a huge city. But somewhere in that city, there is a big place which is called the Ramakrishna Ashram, and thus uh, it's still. A, I'm trying to say it's a big mission. This Ramakrishna mission, not just some joke created by a crazy yogi who then died and the whole thing. No, and others, Swami Shivananda, who created the Shivananda Yoga style, which is taught all over the world. Swami Shivananda created, if I remember correctly. I always forget this one. Either 34 disciples or 43 disciples. I forgot which one of them it is. Anyway, he created around 40 disciples in yoga. One of them was Swami Satyananda Sarasvati, who alone started another big yoga school, the Bihar School of Yoga. Just one of them, and started a whole lineage, a whole school. So... That's how it's happening in yoga as well. It's exactly like Jesus sends them. That's why it's interesting to meditate on this, that he tells them, don't take a stuff, don't take a bag, don't take bread, don't take money, don't take anything, you know? Just go. Go and do it. There are people who still do that, and uh, just following in the footsteps of Jesus, some of these fanatic neo-Protestant sects, They go there, and unfortunately they put to shame sometimes even classical uh, religious people in Christianity. There is a beautiful movie which is called, if I remember correctly, it's called The Other Side of Heaven. And you won't believe it. It's about Mormons, the Mormon church. It's Mormon missionaries, the Mormon boys... They have to be celibate, and when they are 18 or something, the elders, they have a council of elders in Utah, in Salt Lake City, and they send them for missionary work for five years, for ten years, and then they can come back home and get married and settle down. Like when they are young and wild, they are sent out there to be like wild, and this other side of heaven is about such a Mormon young boy, 19 years old, who graduated their theological institute, so he's indoctrinated, he is brainwashed the Mormon way, and he goes somewhere in Polynesia. That's why it's called the other side of heaven, because it's like, it's like heaven. It's like Bora Bora, like Tahiti, like, but it's something much smaller and less known. It's some islands where nobody gets where there are Polynesians, and there come three boats per year, or something like this. There's no airport, there is not just some lost of those thousands of islands in Micronesia and Polynesia, some of those. How fanatic the Mormons are that they send preachers to convert the Polynesians to Mormonism. Like how relevant is that? You know, there are a hundred people on the whole island and they will never have a huge relevance in the history of the planet Earth because they never come out of that island, you know. And you spend... They do. They don't spare any resources. They just go and do. And this young boy, he has to sacrifice his life and to preach Mormonism on some God-forsaken island somewhere in the Pacific. I have that movie... As examples for the teachers of Agama. Because I'm telling you, if any one of you would be fanatic like that young boy, yoga would be on the lawn of the White House by now. You know, it's like it will be, you no, know, like how much commitment some people can have for their ideology, for their cause. And ultimately, it's just a Christian sect. And it's a sect. And in yoga the headstand works fantastically and the pranayama works fantastically, you know? And still, very seldom you have people like Ramakrishna or like Yogananda who live for yoga. Their life is yoga, 100% yoga. Until I die, I teach yoga, I preach yoga, and I go full on. So, that's why I say... Uh, It's the same here with the apostles. Jesus is preparing these apostles. Because after he dies. They will have a lifetime of creating the Christian church. Even in the most adverse conditions. Remember 11 out of 12 were assassinated. And some of them even not nicely. Some of them assassinated badly. In torturing ways. Like Peter who was crucified upside down. So so this is something to meditate upon, including with the other ideas that we mentioned. As I said earlier, enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining and for listening to these ideas. If you have questions, as usually, put them in your notes and come with them at questions and answer sessions. And I'll see you in the next events here in Agamo. With this, we have finished.